Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. The LGBTQ plus community has always been an important part of the American fabric, but it's only in the last two decades that society, the law, and the financial services industry have started to catch up to the community's unique planning needs. To help us put context around these features and the evolution of the law, I spoke with estate planning attorney Brian Balduzzi. Brian's a lawyer in Philadelphia at the international law firm Fager Drinker. Among many other activities, Brian serves as the vice president of the Cornell Pride Alumni Association, where he holds his MBA. I'm thrilled to have him on to discuss this important topic. Welcome aboard, Brian. Thanks, Fraser. Great to be here. I'm thrilled to have you on. We knew each other back from our Wilmington Trust days a little bit, but you've gone on to have kind of a really cool career coming out of a trust company environment. Why don't you take a couple minutes and talk to us about your background and how you came to be where you are right now? Sure. I think it's working with different advisors that has really shown me the holistic value that comes from working as a tax and estate planning attorney. I started my career at a mid-sized accounting firm where I learned more of the basics of accounting and tax preparation that has served me well in working with high net worth individuals and their families on their tax and estate planning needs. I transitioned to a mid-sized law firm where I was practicing in their tax and estate planning team for high net worth entrepreneurs, folks in the biotech, as well as in real estate development and intergenerational wealth. And through those experiences took me to the trust company where we met and really rounded out my knowledge of once we have a plan in place, how is it implemented? Or how is the value from working with different advisors within a trust company, within a bank, or outside of the bank, really adding value to those client relationships. And after working for a few years in the planning and fiduciary team at Wilmington Trust, transition back into private practice because I saw most of my value coming from those relationships, as well as the legal advice, knowledge, and planning that I could do for those clients. Worked for New York law firm, Davis and Gilbert, before transitioning recently to Fakery Drinker in Philadelphia, working with our Philadelphia, New Jersey, and New York clients and partners. So my experience has been relatively diverse, but it all comes back to how do we add value to the relationship? How do we work collaboratively across our different knowledge base and do right for our clients in what I see as an evolving world and one that is right for intergenerational transfer of wealth and diversity that comes with that. So one of the things that's, I think, unique about your background, uh, you've got a particular niche and specialty in the LGBTQ plus world. And the estate planning, financial planning, even the tax planning considerations are a little bit different in that world than maybe some typical trust and estates, traditional marriage, traditional family situations have. And the purpose of the podcast is to talk about those a little bit in detail because I think it's an important and sometimes not well-publicized part of the fabric of the U.S. right now and internationally that these issues are big and significant and differently complex. Maybe talk a little bit about what that demographic shift looks like. What are we trying to solve for here? Sure. So 
I first want to applaud you and others that are listening to this, that you're taking the time to learn how our communities are changing, how our families are changing, but our goals have not. So if I think about the goals of estate planning and tax planning, it's to transfer wealth, transfer knowledge, transfer experiences and values to the next generation. And whatever that next generation looks like, the people that survive us. And the differences that come with an LGBTQ plus family are that a number of them are chosen. A number of them have gone through various iterations based on the court and societal views on their relationships. So we have more folks now than ever who are coming out as lesbian, as gay, are identifying as transgender, transgender men, transgender women. We have folks who are identifying across a varied spectrum. And with that identity comes different family structures that they are forming, whether they are relationships with their biological family or with, as I mentioned, a chosen family. And we find recently, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, the number is doubling in terms of the visibility, the willingness to come out, to be visible, to want to form their families and think about planning for those families for the future. And we find particularly, as I mentioned, with that intergenerational wealth, there's going to be a wealth transfer coming. And we find that the younger generation, for which I consider myself at the older end of, is set to inherit a fair amount of money, trillions of dollars, and being aware of their differences in value, as well as their differences in family planning, incredibly useful for any advisor to be aware of. And LGBTQ folks is just one type of what I consider the modern family, or perhaps a non-traditional mom, dad, two and a half kids and a dog and a white picket fence. But there's some changes that are coming in this country. And I think being aware, maybe using this as just one example for which we can be more reflective planners, advisors, and more thoughtful about the planning needs for this community that might transcend to perhaps another non-traditional family or blended family and the like. So let's put some specifics at play here. There's been a lot of recent court activity, decisions in particular. Take us through a little bit about the implications of the sort of the judicial landscape change that's taken place over the last, uh, I guess, couple of decades in particular, new legislation, et cetera. What are the big things that have happened in that time frame that have sort of helped change the landscape or change the perspective of how this planning takes place? As I mentioned Some of it comes from the courts, some of it comes from society, and I hate to bifurcate those. I think they go hand in hand and how our courts have decided what rights to bestow or to reinforce for LGBTQ families is important. So if we go back to the 90s and we look at the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, that was passed in response to some of the states who were redefining what it meant to be married under state law, redefining it as maybe not just a man and a woman and DOMA changing that for federal purposes. And then the mini DOMAs that popped up of states defining marriage between a man and a woman. And we had some litigation at the lower court level in the 90s, early 2000s. And it wasn't until states like Massachusetts and Vermont with civil unions really changed our public perspective on what 
fundamental rights for marriage, for privacy, and for planning were available to these families. And starting in 2013, U.S. v. Windsor, which worked its way through the courts when I was in law school, dating myself or not, and looking at Edith Windsor there, who had a deceased spouse and an estate tax return for which she was treated differently than similarly situated opposite sex couples. And she was not entitled to the unlimited marital deduction, even though she was validly married in that time under New York law and the lack of recognition there. And that struck down section three of DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, and denied or opened up the federal recognition of same-sex marriage. And later in 2015 with Obergefell v. Hodges, and that was more of a combination of cases coming from multiple plaintiffs, some that were concerned with death certificates and childbirth certificates, all coming under federal law, really looked at the split on the constitutionality of state law bans and looking at how states were treating under those mini domas that I referenced earlier and under an equal protection due process rationales, the court struck down DOMA in its entirety and really set the law of the land, which then perpetrated into our social context and values in reinforcing that these opposite sex couples should be treated the same as same sex couples. And so the law post 2015 is drastically different for estate planning, for tax planning, for federal and state recognition under different employee benefits and the like, such that we are still grappling even six years later with some of these changes, the evolving nature of what is a family, who do we plan for, how is that recognized at the state and federal level that is really valuable for us to consider. And you know, there's even talk about how permanent some of these court cases are, you know, and the possibility that it all could be unraveled, but for some of the planning that we can do for our clients. So we've got this jurisprudence in place, shifting as it is and flexible and in flux. Let's talk about some of the distinct planning needs of the LGBTQ communities that this really impacts and might be maybe not so much different in terms of goals, but different in terms of implementation. You know, for instance, we have sort of the double income, no kids scenario, which, you know, there are many traditional families that have that too. But what do you see in that world that might be a little bit different from a planning perspective? So first, I love that you mentioned that the goals often are the same. The goal is to pass along wealth, pass along knowledge and values is pretty universal in our communities. And thinking about what specifically about lifestyles and or planning considerations we can review for LGBTQ folks. So as you mentioned, dual income, no kids. I referenced the fact that these are chosen families. We are breaking down what were traditional models of what makes a family. And so sometimes folks will choose not to have children, not to adopt, not to use a surrogate, but that their nuclear family is themselves and their partner. I also use the word partner because sometimes these folks, because of so many years of not having a state or federally recognized marriage, may not turn to 
that type of recognition. They may choose to be quote unquote legal strangers for all intents and purposes. They may choose to use civil unions or different types of partnership arrangements rather than being formally recognized as married under state, city, federal law, which comes with a number of different planning considerations for, well, how do we consider that person if there is incapacity, if there is a death in the family in terms of inheritance rights that still abide by, and if you look at a lot of state probate statutes, probate codes, still use spouse, still use married partner as a default for a lot of our intestacy statutes, as well as for a number of recognition rights that if families choose to have different considerations, different structuring may be considered. We also want to consider the fact that as they choose their family, they may, for various reasons, be estranged from their biological family. So it can be really complicated for both our clients' planning needs as well as how their relationship with their parents or other biological family members plans come into play. So being sensitive to where they fit in this family tree, who are they in good relationship with, and what is the planning that's been done for them, as well as what we can do for our specific client based on what their chosen family is, their needs, and the like. And finally, I will say, you know, there's a certain amount of dignity that comes under the law that has been a long time coming. I'm in my 30s, and so I can somewhat remember from the 90s when I was coming out of being treated like I was like all of my other peers. And to be treated differently under the law for hospitals, for banks, for other institutions, there's still somewhat of that concern that I think us as advisors can help alleviate that coming out process that folks are continually doing based on their plan. So the fact that they need to come out as gay, given that they are married to a man and they identify as a man, or if they transition from male to female, that process will also out them. And so there's a lack of privacy sometimes that comes with this community, as well as concerns that we're always respecting who that person is, what their journey is, what their needs are, and how we can help accomplish that via the knowledge that you and I and others have on best planning practices. That's a great point. I mean, it's something that I take for granted all the time, which is, oh, you know, I, I don't have to worry about privacy really in many ways. But for there are people who really struggle with this issue, it can stall very important planning and at worst just create a total avoidance of things that really should be in place and put mental blocks around the idea that there are support structures out there within the advisory community that can help with that. So very good point. Appreciate that. So if we get down to brass tacks here for people who might be listening, who are in these various communities we're talking about, what are some of the documents that really they should focus on and get in place and start to take bites out of this complexity? Yeah, if I can just go back to your last point, when you were talking about the privacy concerns, it can definitely stall the relationship. It can stall the planning, but it can also be the impetus for planning. Because having some of these documents, having some of these plans in place will protect them from having to out themselves, 
So I talk with clients a lot about, we'll get to this, wills and trust planning, particularly if they want to minimize their involvement with public record via the probate court, depending on what state they're in, and otherwise protect their relationships in terms of who's named in what capacity and not leaving it simply to the legal relationship that may or may not be present, the marriage or the relationship with biological or non-biological children, depending if they've been adopted, thinking about what documents we can put in place to help perpetuate their goals, fulfill their values and mission, while also protecting them from a privacy and dignity perspective. So I start by, given that we're in a global pandemic, thinking about healthcare proxy, living will, advanced medical directive, whatever you want to call that, that really is naming someone for medical purposes, someone that can make decisions as well as what their goals are in relation to their own body and autonomy. And leaving those directions and giving someone that authority to act. Now, why is that important for LGBTQ folks? Well, as I mentioned, you know, depending on what the legal relationship is, we want to make sure that there is a formally recognized document that can allow them to go into a hospital to be able to talk with doctors on behalf of your partner or someone that you care about in your family. Regardless of what your formal legal relationship is, that document can be, I think, a lifesaver and really protecting that dignity of that person. There are some really complicated, confidential, and harmful, almost trauma-filled decisions that need to be made in regard to LGBTQ folks. So I think of those, and we're living with more dignity and autonomy now, folks who have HIV and whether they want that to be known or not. While it is not exclusive to the LGBTQ community, we are affected by that. And so to have a healthcare proxy, advanced medical directive in place will help someone else act in your place should anything happen to you and share records with the folks that you want to have that under HIPAA and the like. Then I think about financial powers of attorney, thinking about what other financial decisions, what other major life decisions may need to be made in terms of incapacity and the like. This is all lifetime planning that we're talking about right now, but like our healthcare proxies, helping someone live with dignity, helping someone make financial decisions for themselves should they be incapacitated and giving that to your partner who lives with you, who knows your day in and day out to pay the mortgage, to make sure that the lights stay on, and or transfer assets appropriately is critical. And we we talk about that, whether they're opposite sex or same sex couples. This just happens to be more important. And we want to define the scope of that depending on who it is. So making them extra durable, making sure that all the powers that you want and talking about what that partner needs to continue for you to live your life as a couple should anything happen to you and you're incapacitated. Once we get through those, I think more about, as I referenced at the beginning, those privacy concerns. So thinking about a will and a trust. Now, without going into too much detail, because limitations in terms of state law and the like, which you can appreciate. That's its own podcast, right? (laughs) (laughs) Thinking about if we're trying to avoid our state intestacy laws, if we're saying that is not going to get us to where we want to be 
for our goals as working with our clients. And with a lot of LGBTQ folks, it won't because the state statute, I think, is behind the times in terms of the modern family in many jurisdictions. We want a will or we want a trust that will lay out at death who's going to serve as guardian for your minor children, should anything happen to one or both of you, who is going to inherit or manage your wealth, money, property upon your death as well as, I think, manage the relationship with that biological family that I referenced, who may or may not have a claim, may or may not have um, argument that you should be leaving your assets to them and or that was part of the plan all along and don't, for whatever reason, recognize your relationship with your partner or with your chosen family that I referenced earlier. So thinking about these wills, these trusts in terms of privacy concerns, because as we know, a trust may mitigate probate, depending if it's a living trust that might be in existence prior to death, or a will that will lay out who is to receive your property and otherwise provide direction to the court, to your executor, with instructions for what happens when you die. And after we talk about that as a planning meeting, we might go into more specifics depending on your goals and circumstances. So I think about what happens if we have a change in exemption amount or we have some change in the federal recognition of marriage. I don't know if that's going to happen, but we always have to be aware that there are those who don't want to recognize these relationships and might be fighting for a more traditional view of a family. So if there was a change in perhaps not allowing an unlimited marital deduction that we have for same-sex couples, would we have an estate tax either at the state level or at the federal level in the future? Do we need to consider liquidity planning depending if there is one partner who is staying home with the kids and the like that we want to provide insurance. So thinking about insurance trust planning or insurance as part of our planning goals and working with advisors on that. Do we think about powers of appointment? So thinking about giving flexibility and life to our documents and life to our trusts that allow us to adjust as the chosen family might change after the death of one spouse and continuing on for the lifetime of a second spouse. All of those, I think, are really valuable in helping clients think through their privacy, their dignity, as well as their relationship in the context of our evolving respect for same-sex couples and or the LGBT community at large. So for those of us who advise people in that space, what can we do to be better and maybe a little bit more, I don't know, holistic is a word that gets thrown around a lot, but I think just more open-minded or just really understanding of their issues a little bit better and able to bring our tools to bear in a much more precise way? I think bringing your whole self is where it starts. So people want to work with authentic advisors. You have always been great about asking questions to me, and I don't think there's any dumb questions, and having a group of like-minded advisors who are 
always open to learning about new communities or about how to be a better advisor and planning is important. So first and foremost, I think, again, listening to a podcast like this, thinking about how you can be more reflective and or considerate and or plan better for different types of communities is important. If I'm thinking about what does a holistic advisor for the LPD community need or be, I think rethinking about some of your language. Language is really critical for both trust, estate planning, as well as for the LGBTQ community. So while I referenced earlier the use of the word partner instead of spouse can be really critical and helping bridge this gap between always thinking about two folks in a couple as being married or having the benefit of state, federal recognition of their relationship, partner may allow a couple that comes in to see you that flexibility to say, we haven't chosen whether we want to get married or not. How do we think about that? How does that affect our estate or tax or trust planning? Thinking about how we can have no assumptions or judgments on what their relationship is or who their chosen family is, who they leave their wealth to, the instructions that they might leave, folks can think of their dogs or pets as children, and that becomes a chosen family for those dual income, no kids. We have an arsenal of resources available to us in terms of planning for all of those considerations. I think having the willingness, the open-mindedness to ask the questions, to not make assumptions, and to use language that is more open and less what we've traditionally used for a quote-unquote traditional family. I'm also thinking about planning or advising for these shifting family relationships. It's understanding those family tree dynamics, understanding the biological family meets that chosen family. Who do they consider their family that they want to benefit? Because those are the folks that hopefully you'll be working with should anything happen to your client. Those are the ones you'll want to reach out to or know perhaps your client did not want you to reach out to them, or they're estranged from that there might be challenges to a will and the like. And finally, I think about that privacy, confidentiality concern that we brought up earlier. I think that there's still a stigma, there's still discrimination at many levels via employers, housing, and the like, that we need to be sensitive as advisors for how open they are about their relationship, about their status within a community, about any health concerns. I referenced living with HIV that might impact us as advisors, good information for us to know, but that we need to be very judicial about how we share, how we communicate our work with them and or how we draft, review, advise their document and planning. I was going to say, it's really understanding not only their particular situation, but their constituents as well, the people that, that their lives affect. And to me, it's that next level question that it's not only going to help the specific advice that you give the client, but it's the broader advice around their life that they're actually going to value that much more. Absolutely. It's living with that dignity and to have advisors that say, I see you, I see you for your relationship. I'm here to help you. I'm part of this community, at least in the small way of helping you plan your affairs and your goals. 
in regard to your finances, your property, and your family can be really empowering for folks to have that have been shut out of conversations regarding their wealth, their finances, their property, and the relationships. So as we, we're going to start to wind down here a little bit, what are some real takeaways here? I know 2015 is a real fulcrum year for a lot of legislative updates and judicial mandates that have sort of changed the framework for this type of planning. What should people listening to this take away from when they hear this? What should they look at in their own planning that they may not have thought of before? You're absolutely right about thinking about that 2015 as being a fulcrum year. I advise clients to look over their planning needs every three to five years or when there's a change in the family. But 2015 planning or pre-2015 planning is drastically different perhaps than what we can do in 2021 and beyond, hopefully. So I think having a conversation on what they currently have in place, whether any goals have changed for the family is critically important. And as They think about their relationships changing. We haven't really touched upon, but I'll mention it. Prenups and second parent adoptions, as well as surrogacy, all are changes in a family that warrant a re-examination of their documents, of their goals, of who is considered part of this family and how they fit in. That can be really critical for us as we move forward in protecting these clients, this community. And I think general takeaways are educate yourself, surround yourself with advisors who are similarly reflective and or part of this community. I'm happy to, and I often do speak on these matters to other financial advisors, to life insurance agents, or to other communities that are looking to know more about what are some of these issues? And I can't speak for that whole community. I probably should have given that caveat. I'm one person within that and have been working with this community for a few years as part of it. But I think our willingness to be reflective, to be thoughtful, to bring our whole selves to the relationship, sharing what our own planning is and or our relationship with that community can be critical. Whether you've attended Pride, whether you have a family member who identifies as part of this community, or whether you just understand that their planning needs are different, that we talked about, that they might have different structuring that we can do, we can add value to. That alone, I think, is just really critical visibility and or accountability of our profession to be thoughtful advisors. Well, hopefully this discussion reaches a lot of different people because I think everything you've been talking about is really valuable in terms of understanding the needs of these communities and providing the advice and not just the technical advice, but really the support. And thank you very much for being on the show, Brian. How do we stay in touch with you? How do we find you? Give us some of your details on that. Sure. So you can reach me. I currently work at Baker Drinker in Philadelphia. You can reach me at Brian.Balduzzi at bakerydrinker.com. Happy to answer any questions and or support you however you need. You can also reach me at LinkedIn at LinkedIn slash IN slash Brian Balduzzi. And again, if you have any questions on LGBTQ estate planning, it's a newer area, constantly evolving, but one that 
we continue to collaborate on, you know, among us as advisors. So happy to connect with folks who are interested in this area or have been working with these types of clients with any thoughts or reflections. And thank you again, Frazier, for having me on here for thinking so much of this as a planning opportunity or a thoughtful way that we can continue to be engaged with a modern family with these changing demographics. Well, Brian, thank you very much for being on. And for listeners, I'll have Brian's contact information in the show notes. Take care of yourself, Brian. Have a great rest of the summer and we'll be in touch. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.